as we uh, as we go through the uh, the Bible in a year series, we are now leaving the period of the judges, and we're getting into the book of First Samuel, and the the book of Judges ends with this. Um, it, it's kind of a sobering statement about uh, the people in those days. In those days, Israel had no king. And everyone did as they saw fit. That's the end of the, the book of Judges. And uh, when we get into First Samuel, uh, God actually gives the Israelites a king at their request, not God's initiative. At their request, God give us a king. And God gives them their first king, King Saul. And you will see as we read our story today from First Kings 15 that that phrase, uh, everyone did as they saw fit, that still applies even when the Israelites do have a king. And so we're looking at a story that captures the, the kingship of Saul, Israel's first king. Uh, let's, uh, let's read together. I'm going to read verses 1 through 28. Samuel said to the Lord, I am the one of the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants. Cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 from Judah. And Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. And then he said to the Kenites, go away, leave the Amalekites so that you so that I do not destroy you along with them, for you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt. And he took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. And all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agog and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and the lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry. And he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on toward Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? 
Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we have totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people of the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Samuel said, or Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agog, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. And now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. And as Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe, and it tore. Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. So this scripture has a, has a silent warning. Do not be so careless about disobedience. And I think one of the, the easy things is to dismiss this as, oh, it's one of those Old Testament stories where God kind of does some crazy things that we don't really expect God to be doing today, and so we don't really have to worry about this story about Saul really saying anything about our lives and how we're supposed to respond to God. But I don't think we can do that. I don't think we can take that attitude. Uh, for one reason, because of uh, what Jesus says, and we'll get to what Jesus says, at least uh, one line from Jesus a little bit later. Um, but but Jesus says things that make us think we've got to take this seriously. In fact, if we were to ignore the story, I think we do so very foolishly. So I want to start with a summary statement um, for our our message today. It's in your in your notes, um, and it's this: Examine your life for trust in and obedience to God. Examine your life for trust in and obedience to God. And as um, as I've read and reflected on First Samuel 15, what comes to my mind are questions that we can ask of ourselves, questions that I can ask of myself. And I'm going to give you four questions this morning that I think help us to examine our life for trust in and obedience to God. 
And uh, let's get to the first question right now, and it's this. Do I trust in my own wisdom over God's? Do I trust in my own wisdom over God's wisdom? One of the objections to this story is the severity of what God says to do in verse 3. Do you catch the severity of what God said to do? Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. So, you know, if you were to circle the troubling words in that verse, what would they be? Maybe multiple, but children and infants, right? That's the, that's the troubling part of, of that command. Really, God? Well, that sounds rather bloodthirsty and cruel. And, and I wouldn't blame anyone for reading that verse and, and having some problem with it. Now, it's always helpful to get the bigger picture, and uh, so let's do that a little bit. The Amalekites, uh, they were known as a terribly wicked people, terribly wicked, regularly practice uh, children, infant sacrifice, so they construct um, stone altars to their god, Marduk, and they would throw infants and children on those red-hot burning altars and sacrifice them uh, to their God. I think I said Marduk, uh, Molech is the name of the God of the Amalekites. And notice uh, what God says about the Amalekites in Deuteronomy chapter 25. A little background about the history between the Amalekites and the Israelites. Verse 17 of Deuteronomy 25, remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came up out of Egypt. So during Israelites' exodus out of Egypt, they're traveling through the wilderness. Verse 18, when you were weary and worn out, they met you on the journey, not to give you a helping hand or to refresh you. No, they attacked all who were lagging behind. All, all that were weak and weary at the, the end of the Israelite caravan. They attacked the most vulnerable. They had no fear of God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all your enemies around you in the land he is giving you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. Do not forget. So the Amalekites went after the weakest of the Israelites. And God would have a problem with that because when God sets up divine law of how people should treat the vulnerable and the powerless with mercy and compassion, and a nation violates that, that law so in such a grievous manner, we shouldn't be shocked that God, that a righteous God, acts in judgment against that. So it's helpful to know that background behind the Amalekites. And you could also recognize that there could be some mercy in the command of God. Instead of leaving thousands and thousands of infants just in the battlefield or in the, in the you know, in the, the homeland of the Amalekites with all their parents gone, uh, that there probably is some mercy instead of letting them die of starvation and and, and you could also hold on to this idea, and you don't have to hold on to this idea, but it's certainly 
uh, reasonable to hold on to this idea that those infants and children went on to be with the Lord, just like the the, the infants and the the boys under two that that Herod had put to death in in Bethlehem, because he was trying to to uh, to find baby Jesus, toddler Jesus, and have him put to death. Those infants and toddlers went on to be with the Lord. So this could be a form of divine mercy. Um, so there's there's ways that we can kind of rationalize around this command of God, but I think ultimately, ultimately, we have to say, you know, God is is God. Psalm twenty four verse one says, "The earth is the Lord's and everything that is in it, the world." And all who live in it, we all belong to God. God is God. And there are other stories when God judges cities and nations, even the world. And the result is the same, total destruction, including children and infants who seem to be innocent of the wickedness. Think of the great flood. Um, Sodom and Gomorrah with with the fire coming down from heaven. God judges wickedness, and the younger generation did not escape that judgment. And ultimately, we just have to trust the destiny of people to God. The earth is the Lord. And everyone who is in it belongs to the Lord. Belongs to the Lord. But Samuel rejects God's command and trusts in his own wisdom. Now, it's interesting um, as an aside, that the reason that Samuel, that the reason that Saul, I might have said Samuel earlier, Saul, the reason that Saul rejects God's wisdom is not because Saul is soft-hearted. Um, it's, it's not because Saul is too compassionate for the children and the infants, too compassionate to carry out God's command. Because who does Saul spare? Yeah, it's not the children and the infants. It's the animals and the king. Verse 9, but Saul and the army spared Agog and the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat calves and the lambs, everything that was good, that he saw was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Now, what does that sound like? That sounds a bit like the Amalekites picking off the weakest of the Israelites during their exodus from Egypt. So Saul and his men were not simply just too soft-hearted. In the end, I think they took a look at all this stuff that they captured when they defeated the Amalekites, and they thought, boy, it just does not make sense for us to let all of this good stuff go to waste. Surely God wouldn't mind us keeping a little bit of it for ourselves. And whenever we say, yeah, I know God says this, but boy, it just makes sense that this over here is okay. Boy, we are in danger, aren't we? And there's, you know, as we go through these four questions, I think that the hope is, the intent is that we'll be reflecting on these four questions and how, how we would respond to them. Is there ways, are there ways where I'm trusting my own wisdom over the Lord's wisdom? And so we need to think, how am I saying, ah, oh, it just makes sense that this would be okay, right? It's not hurting anyone. This, the, you know, this website, the pornographic website, it's not hurting anyone. It's all right. It just makes sense to be okay. You know, the the kind of the play horoscope stuff. 
That's, that's all right. It's just for fun, right? That's not hurting anyone. You know, I hear from some people, and I hear other people hearing from some people something like this. It just makes sense that I can worship God uh, however I want to. I can worship God. I can have my little private faith, my private practice of religion, and worship God how I want to, by myself, out in the country, out on the golf course, whatever, just listening to music. And I can have my own little private practice of faith. And God says, no, 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 your faith is to be lived out in a community of faith, in a church family. So first question, am I trusting in my own wisdom over God's wisdom? The second question is this, do I blame others for their disobedience instead of accepting responsibility myself? Because then the Lord told Samuel to go confront Saul because he had not carried out his instructions. So Samuel gets up early to confront Saul. Isn't it interesting where Samuel has to go to find Saul? Because when he goes into town looking for the king, he can't find him. And someone has to tell Samuel, hey, the king's over in Carmel. Oh, what is the king doing over there? Well, he's constructing a monument to himself. See, Saul has this image to protect of himself. He relentlessly tries to justify himself. He's constructing a monument, not so that Saul can stare at the monument and say, look at me, but so that others can look at the monument and say, think about, oh, King Saul. Think about King Saul. Saul relentlessly tries to protect his image and attempts to justify himself. Saul shifts the blame of disobedience to others. He says, Samuel, Samuel, my men, they are the ones who brought the livestock. They are the ones. It's my men. It's a bit like Aaron in explaining the, the golden calf idol, saying, I, I, I don't know what happened. I, I, all of a sudden, my people were coming to me and saying, make for us a statue. And I, I don't know, give me your gold and throw them in the fire. And out came this golden calf. I don't, I, it's kind of hard to make to explain. Um, so Sam, Saul is just passing the blame around. Samuel hears this from Saul and he says, enough, enough. I have something to say to you. Saul says, say it. Samuel says in verse 17, Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? Now, he could be saying this, Saul, it looks like you're downplaying your own sin and your responsibility right now. Let me help you out with that, because it looks like you're, you're downplaying your culpability in all of this. It looks like you're saying, yeah, you know, I did what I could, but these soldiers of mine, I, mean, I, I guess... I guess, you know, if you want to be really technical about it, I guess they didn't fully follow God's instructions, but does God really keep track of that stuff anyway? And, and you know, I really didn't have much control of it anyway because it was my men who did it. And Samuel reminds him, did you not become the king of Israel? Did not God put you in responsibility over these men? You may have thought that you were small in your own eyes at one point, but God has made you head over Israel. He's given you this responsibility. And this is a strong reminder for us to be faithful in the positions of responsibility that God has placed us in. Responsibility 
as parents over our children, responsibility as husbands of our wives and wives of husbands, responsibilities as elders and deacons of Hope Church and as pastor of Hope Church, to be faithful to the responsibilities that God has given to you. How about your responsibilities to support one another? You know, as a Christian, do you have responsibilities to other Christians? Yes, 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 we do. You bet we do. Hebrews chapter 10 says, And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you say today, see the day approaching. We have these responsibilities that God has given us. And will we fail sometimes? Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely we will fail sometimes, without a doubt. What do we do in those, in those moments that we fail? Not look for someone else to take the blame or to take the heat. No, what do we do? We, we repent. We listen instead of trying to defend ourselves like Saul was doing. We just listen and we repent. Let me suggest that this was an opportunity for Saul to, to truly repent. This was an opportunity for him to listen and not say anything in response to Samuel, not try to defend himself, not look for someone else that he can kind of shift some of the blame to. It was his opportunity to take heart what was being said to him and just repent. And I don't know what would have happened in this moment if he had done that, if he had some heartfelt contrition here and 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 demonstrated that. I don't know what would have happened, but I do know of examples of what God does when someone truly repents and turns from their sinfulness. There's a, there's a king in the Old Testament. He doesn't get too much um, airtime. His name was King Manasseh, and he was known as one of the, the most wicked kings of Israel in Old Testament days. And there were some bad ones, and he was known as the, the worst, the most evil of the kings of Israel. Just look at the beginning of Second Chronicles chapter 33 to see a list of some of the evils of King Manasseh, including child sacrifice, including witchcraft, including worshiping all kinds of false gods. That's King Manasseh. And God was angry with him. And the, the crazy thing from Second Chronicles 33 is he repented. Manasseh repented. And you would have expected God to say, too late, Manasseh. I mean, you've done too much damage. You have destroyed too much. I, I can't do anything else with you. I've seen enough from you, and I'm through with you. But instead, God actually restores Manasseh to his kingdom because Manasseh, as evil as he was, he repented. Or the repentance of Zacchaeus before Jesus. He was perhaps, you know, the story of Zacchaeus in the tree and, and living in Jericho. Other than the Romans, he was probably public enemy number one for the Jews who lived in Jericho. He cheated his fellow Jews out of their livelihood by overtaxing them, giving giving the proper amount to the Romans, but then taking some for himself, of course. And when he repented, when he honestly repented and promised restoration of how he had wronged others, Jesus doesn't condemn him. He says, 
oh, salvation has come to this man. We see what happens when people truly repent in scriptures, in the scriptures. I see what happens when people repent. God shows grace and mercy to those who humble themselves before him. And so maybe if at this moment Saul had truly repented and had a change of his heart and he, and he turned away from his rebellion, a different outcome might have happened. See, there is a great danger when we refuse to own responsibility for our sin and instead just look for how we can shift the blame to others. Question three, as we examine our hearts. Do I covet which is not rightfully mine? Samuel is not done with his questioning of Saul. And in verse 19, here's what he says to Saul. Not to Saul's men, but to Saul. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of of the Lord, and that word pounce is significant. Um, first, that word also is used to describe a a not just a bird swooping down on its prey, but a shrieking ver- bird swooping down on its prey. There, there's intensity. There's it's there's some instinct. Uh, there there's there's a bird being ravenous as it swoops down on its prey. So that's what that. That word carries with it. Why did you pounce on the plunder? And second, as I mentioned before, Samuel points his finger right at Saul and not to Saul's army. Why did you, Saul, singular, why did you pounce and plunder on on the plunder? You wanted it for yourself, and so you took it. You wanted it for yourself, and so you took it, which may have been okay, except for the one simple and vital fact that the Lord said, you shall not have this. This plunder is not yours for you to keep. And so there are many examples of how we may covet what is not rightfully mine. What are some examples of when we want something and we try to pursue it in illegitimate ways. Start of the school year, I thought of good test grades without the effort of studying, right? I covet that, that achievement, maybe because my parents won't be on my, my case, but I pursue that in illegitimate ways. Coveting the acceptance of others based on our outward appearance or our status among the crowd. It's pursuing something in illegitimate ways. Uh, perhaps there is no greater area today of coveting something that is not rightful ours in the era of human sexuality and sexual partners today. Today's time, we've adopted this attitude. When I say we, kind of cultures adopted this attitude of, oh, this makes me happy, and I should be able to do this regardless of what God says about this. Perhaps we see that in no greater way today than in our sexual relationships. So,
And Saul then responds, But I did obey the Lord. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agog, their king. Well, Saul, I hate to tell you, that does, that means that you didn't completely destroy the Amalekites, right? If their king is with you, then you didn't completely destroy them. And then Saul said again, the soldiers, they took the sheep and the cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice themselves them to the Lord. And then Samuel has this simple response in verse 22. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obedience to the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. And and sometimes we think that, you know, as long as, as we are singing to God and praying to God and serving others in the name of God, then we get a pass, then that everything's okay. That everything is great between us and God. And that God is, is fine with what we do. Because, you know, we're, we're doing the kind of the common practices of faith. And this passage should correct that assumption, shouldn't it? Obedience to God is more pleasing to God than our worship. It's our singing form of worship. Why is that? Because our obedience implies trust. Our obedience to God implies trust in the Lord. And Samuel continues in verse 23, For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Now what makes rebellion and disobedience against God like divination? Why the comparison there? Because with divination, like obedient, disobedience, I'm, I'm looking to something else for guidance of my life instead of the, the Word of God. I, I'm not trusting in God's Word with divination or, or with my rebellion, I'm not trusting in God. I'm looking for some other set of guiding principles for my life. So obedience to God, it implies trust in God. That's why obedience is so important to God. Because it shows God we trust Him. And then Samuel gives this, this, this terrible pronouncement. Because you have rejected God's Word. Because you are not trusting in God's Word. God has rejected you as king. And then Saul finally has some moment maybe of regret. Maybe not of repentance. I don't think, but regret, kind of regret. I, I regret that I've, I've been caught in this moment and that things are looking bad for me, that, that kind of regret, not the repentance kind of regret. Then Saul said to Samuel, well, I have sinned. I have violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I, I was, here's, here's the deal. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. So that might have been the moment of greatest honesty from Saul in this, in this passage. He finally just says, yeah, I was afraid of those men. So fourth question for us this morning, do I fear others instead of God? Variation of that question, do I fear others more than I fear God? 
whose approval do I seek more? The approval of others or the approval of God? I hope it wasn't in a moment of laziness, but more of just keeping in mind, need to not have an hour-long sermon, that I didn't add too much commentary on (laughs) examples of how fearing others over fearing God will lead us into a lukewarm, half-hearted, insincere faith. But we can at least know this. If we're fearing others more than we're fearing God, we will be living to please others instead of living to please God. So a question came to my mind this week. How do we know if our repentance is real? How do we know if we're just not deceiving ourselves, just like Saul was engaging in self-deception in this passage? How, how can we make sure we're, we're, we're not telling ourselves lies about our, our faith, our faithfulness to God? See, the Bible has too many examples and warnings for people to truly examine their hearts for us to take our salvation for granted. And here's the line from Jesus that I mentioned earlier that I wanted to read now. There's the example of Jesus saying, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. When I read that, I say to myself, Do not take your salvation for granted. I can trust in my salvation, but I can't take it for granted. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 and 27. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. No, I will not take for granted my salvation. I will trust in my salvation, but I won't take it for granted. How can we trust in our salvation? Well, there's this promise from, from 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 that say that if we, without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth of God is not in us. So we want to we examine our hearts and be honest about our hearts. Verse 9 says, but if we confess our sins that He is faithful, He is just, and He will forgive our, all of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So I will trust in my salvation, but I won't take it for granted. Do not turn God's promise of forgiveness into a formula, just mechanically confessing sins. Hey, I'm going to get them off my chest, Lord, and believe that you are forgiven. See, God's grace does not work like that. You must repent. And here, I think, is the, the question for repentance, true repentance. Do I repent from all of my sinfulness? And that doesn't mean that you're perfect. Of course it doesn't. That does not mean that you will never fail. Of course it doesn't. But it means that whatever sin you have committed, committed, you are sincerely sorry before the Lord, whatever it is. And you seek to obey the Lord in all matters of action and attitude. And listen, just as it is possible to take for granted God's grace, it is also possible to think too little of God's grace or to be too doubtful of God's grace and live in fear of God's judgment. But the Bible says we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize us with with our weakness. But But we have a high priest, Jesus Christ, 
who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin, so let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence, with confidence, it says, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Approach the throne of grace with confidence. It's trusting in God's grace and in our heart. And knowing that God, when we repent, He will give us grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. So I ask that you that you do something as we get ready for communion. Ask, who is the king of my heart? Who is it for Saul? Saul was his own king. Or how others viewed Saul, that was the king of his heart. That seems to be the overriding motive for Saul. So ask, who is the king of my heart? Ask, what sins do I need to confess to God? Where do I need to say, no more, no more, God? If I were to continue carelessly in this sin, I would be taking for granted my salvation. So no more. I repent of that sin. And God, I need your grace and mercy. Let us approach God's throne of grace. Humbly yet with confidence. So that we will receive. We will receive. You can trust in your salvation so that we will receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let's pray. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, there is nowhere that we can run to to find inner peace other than running to your throne of grace. and presenting our hearts to you and asking that you would forgive us of our sins and knowing that you give us the gift of your Holy Spirit, which reminds us that we are your children and that empowers us to live holy and obedient lives. And as you remind us, as we come to your table, as you remind us that this is a family meal, you invite your family members to attend. May we be renewed and made joyful and be at peace as we sit and eat in your presence and receive your love. And we give you our hearts. And we ask you to be our king. In Christ Jesus we pray. Amen.